Hello, this is Troy, your friendly neighborhood gardening punk, and this is TJ's Garden for June 2022. Uh, I'm coming back to the podcast after a bit of a hiatus. It wasn't intentional or planned. It was uh, basically dealing with my two daughters during the pandemic and the fallout from the pandemic and everything else, as well as uh, helping out with my parents and going back to school at the ripe old age of... Well, then 30-something, now 40. I'm still a student at uh, OSU working on my horticulture degree. By the way, if anybody out there knows of any great internship opportunities, I am looking for one. (laughs) But you didn't come here to hear about me as a student. You came here to have me tell you gardening things. So that's what I'll be doing today. Uh, I'm going to talk a little about my garden first. So I've got some really huge squash plants going. I actually got a pretty late start for me. Uh, which put me in mind of the fact that when you start your garden is a lot more complicated than just whatever the back of a seed packet says. Um, Because if you're in a cold climate, you're going to start everything indoors months ahead of planting anything outside. And even here in California, I like to do that because we have a different problem. We don't have the cold where I am so much. We do get a frost, so I can't grow anything tropical or anything that can't tolerate a frost. But if I have an enclosed area like the greenhouse I've had the last two winters uh, or the uh, the cold frames I was planning to build this summer and wasn't able to do, uh, I usually start things in December (laughs) to have them ready for uh, late winter for most people, but practically early spring for us. I'm going into, you know, March, April, May, and I can often get things out as early as March. The only problem is if I put my tomatoes out too early here in Bakersfield, we'll get hit by a a late frost, which will cause a problem. But usually I can get them in pretty early and even get a few crops before the worst of our summer heat hits. Because when that summer heat hits, a lot of plants, like tomatoes especially, kind of shut down um, if they survive at all. And so... You know, I'm trying to get things to grow through that, but I'm not going to get a whole lot of produce out of, say, the tomatoes. Some crops will do fine. Okra loves our heat. Some squashes grow right through it, but some crops don't. And so in an ideal world, what I would do is I would have um, a shade space where I'm gardening right now. I don't have a lot of room, so I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen. But I would have some shaded space. I could start up some cuttings and stuff then, retire the, you know, kind of used up tomatoes rather than trying to nurse them through the worst of our heat and then start over. Same thing with a bunch of other crops. Um, To miss that summer. And I know that's very different for a lot of people who live in places with serious winters where spring is too early to put a lot of things in even. And they aren't putting things in until about now in June. So it's very different depending on where you are in the country and your specific climate. Uh, but the good thing is, pretty much anywhere in the country, you can start some stuff now. So if it, if, you've, if you're worrying that it's too late, it probably isn't. <laughs> it's probably okay to get something out there today. But today I wanted to talk about bugs. Um, I found a long-legged bug on one of my squash plants. I don't see any eggs laid anywhere. I haven't found any others, so I think I got to it quick enough uh, that particular bug was squished so he's gone or she I have no clue Um, but I wanted to talk about bugs because they have 
a huge impact on the crops we grow. Not all insects are bugs. Bugs are only the order uh, Hemiptera, which puts them apart from, say, butterflies or flies or ants or any of those other insects. They are their own specific group. Like other insects, they have six legs. They have segmented body parts, um, a lot of similar kind of organ layouts, things like that. Some species in this group still have wings. A few don't. They, unlike many of the insects you're probably familiar with, like the bees and butterflies, they do not have uh, complete metamorphosis. So they go through instars, kind of like a grasshopper might, right? So they go through stages. Now, the true bugs are most of our sap-sucking insects. They are, in fact, a good chunk of the insects we deal with as pests in gardens. They are things like aphids, squash bugs, long-legged bugs, scale insects, leafhoppers, uh, as well as a couple of uh, insects that actually attack animals. Uh, bed bugs and assassin bugs are both in this order. So they all have one thing in common. They all have the same sucking mouth part, and they have a lot of similarities by being closely related. But the sucking mouth part is unique. It is different than the version you see in other insects like a mosquito. In a lot of ways, it's simpler. Um, it's one big outer tube and then two fused mouth parts that form an inner tube. And structurally, it creates two channels down the, the straw-like mouth part. And this is all fused and hard, so it doesn't roll up or fold like like a butterfly's uh, proboscis will. Their proboscis is hard and it just stays in place the whole time. So when they pierce into a plant with this, they don't have all the you know, fiddly little parts that like a mosquito has where it has all these different little tools at the end of its proboscis that help it dig into a host and you know start feeding. Uh, they just plunge it right in, pierce the kind of it's almost like a sharpened straw at the end they pierce through the host and then the it has two channels one is an in channel one is an out it's all powered by large pumping muscles in their head and it pumps saliva and a few other enzymes into the plant and then slurps out nutrients on the other side of that um, that is the defining feature of all the insects in this order, they all have that trait, and it defines a lot of the other stuff about their life cycle. They tend not to be the most mobile insects, and it varies wildly throughout the group, but it goes from a gradient of less mobile than most insects, but still pretty mobile, all the way down to completely immobile. So let's start at the top of that and then work our way down, and we'll also kind of cover the reproductive and life cycle, because basically understanding how they reproduce themselves and how their life cycle works is pretty instrumental in coming up with pest management strategies. So let's start with something like a squash bug, right? They're fairly mobile. They have uh, two sets of wings. The outer set acts as a shield for the inner set, so they're partially hardened, but they are not hardened into a hard shell like a beetle's would. Uh, they do have all insects in the order are able to reproduce asexually. Uh, so the female can give birth without actually having to mate. That said, in orders like squash bugs, or orders in species like squash bugs, long-legged bugs, so on, they they actually do lay eggs. 
um, and they tend to lay them in little clusters under the leaves. If you look under your squash plants, you can often see brightly colored, often in several species, it's kind of an orangey or yellowy color um, in clusters. And it's important to kind of look around online when trying to identify these clusters because they look very similar to the clusters that ladybugs and some other beneficial insects lay. So you want to make sure you're not squashing out the ones you don't want. But you can actually find guides online that'll show you. I'll try to link to one in the show notes if I can find some of the ones I've used over the years. That'll, it makes it very visually clear um, how they're different. But anyway, you can remove them from the plants by physically killing them or removing them. There aren't actually a lot of beneficial insects I've found that deal with them very well. Um, some bird species will eat some species, but unfortunately these these bugs are also very closely related. Um, they're sometimes called stink bugs, things like that. They aren't true stink bugs, but they do smell absolutely awful. And so they, they often have chemicals in them that make them unpalatable. So not a lot of stuff actually eats them as an adult. So you often do have to deal with them by hand. Um, it's very easy to go out and just early in the day with a bucket of soapy water just knock them in and it'll kill them off there are a few sprays that'll deal with them but you generally have to use some pretty tough stuff to take them out it's not there isn't a lot of stuff specially targeted so you may be taking out beneficials as well uh, i haven't had much luck using things like diatomaceous earth but i also haven't tried it a lot with them i only tried it once so your mileage may vary on that one <laughs> it can definitely get into the joints and leg parts of some insects. Um, it's really effective against softer bodied insects, but it basically just breaks down the outer kind of cuticle by working its way into parts. That's what the little diatomaceous particles, they're little shards of glass essentially, and they can get in there. But yeah, they're pretty hard to deal with as far as pests, because it's not as easy as just getting a spray or something like that. You actually have to basically deal with them <laughs> they can be pretty devastating in large numbers uh, many people will say squash bug is a curse so they're hard to deal with at the level when they're younger they're pretty easy to just wipe off the leaves if you catch them early um, they can be dealt with and their life cycle is very conventional for insects they lay eggs the eggs hatch they go through several instars where they look like smaller versions of the adults um, I know at least one species that I've seen has kind of brighter reddish colored young who kind of change color to the adult colors as they get older. <laughs> they don't develop wings until the last uh, couple of instars though, so they aren't able to actually fly off until they reach adulthood. And one thing to keep in mind about, at least in my experience, most of the uh, Hemiptera is they aren't very strong flyers and they often won't fly. So it's actually surprisingly easy to catch them with your hands sometimes. They will, their natural urge is to crawl before they, they fly off. So that's, that's like the kind of main, you know, squash bug, that style of life cycles. It's a very straightforward one. They lay eggs, the eggs hatch, they go through several instars, getting bigger and bigger as they molt until they reach adulthood and then they can fly off and mate and start all over again. The next group I want to talk about are aphids, because pretty much everybody's familiar with aphids. We've all seen them. They cover roses and every you know dozens of other plants. And aphids uh, have a slightly modified life cycle. They are even less mobile than the squash bug type insects. Aphids use their asexual 
reproduction uh, quite a bit. <laughs> they actually, so the life cycles for aphids is that a male and female aphid, they're mobile, they can fly, they'll mate, and they will lay eggs, right? The, the males usually fly to the females, but they will lay eggs. Those eggs survive the winter, hatch, and then those first generation of, of females begin reproducing asexually. They, you know, people have joked they're born pregnant. Uh, I, I'm guessing that's a reference to Tribbles from Star Trek. But basically, their bodies reproduce as quickly as they are able to. And so aphids go out, they immediately find a site to feed. They go through a couple of instars getting bigger and bigger. But they never reach full maturity until later in the season. So they... They'll start feeding, get bigger, mature. The second they're able to, they start reproducing, and they'll reproduce as often as they can based on their food supply. And that's why you get these big clusters of aphids on plants sometimes. They're all basically genetically identical. They're all copies of their mothers. And this will go on throughout the season until the weather starts to change. And then they will start producing males and females who can lay the eggs that will survive the winter to, to create the next generation. So they use their asexual reproduction, which is live birth. It's not actually eggs. When they give birth asexually, they are producing another offspring via live birth. So it comes out ready to roll. <laughs> and so they go, they eat, they feed. They start pumping out babies who immediately go looking for sites to feed themselves, which is why when you look at a group of aphids, you see them at every life stage, right? You see little ones to big ones all throughout the whole cycle. And then when the winter, when it starts getting closer to winter, they start producing males and females who can mate, vary up the genetic code a little bit, and find new sites and lay their eggs to start the whole thing over again next spring. So aphids have relatively low mobility most of the year. Once you wipe aphids out on some plants, they're not likely to come back that season unless you happen to get a, a variety that does kind of off-cycle breeding. They're not likely to come back that season because the, the asexually produced aphids aren't particularly mobile. They tend to stay on the same plant for the most part. They can walk a little ways, so they can affect nearby plants, but... Once you've wiped out an infestation, it's probably going to stay wiped out for the rest of that season. It may come back the next season. And they tend to be softer bodied than a lot of other uh, hemiptera. So they actually are more affected by things like diatomaceous earth and other uh, compounds you can put on there that are basically more about irritating their bodies and poisoning insects. And quite frankly, you can just spray them off of a plant with the hose. I've done this many times. If you blast them hard enough, uh, they get end up getting enough injuries and pushed far enough away from a plant, they may not be able to get back. So I, you know, after I do that a few times in the spring, I often won't see them again for the rest of the year. And of course, everybody's favorite garden beneficial, the ladybug, is an aphid eater. That's that's their primary target. So once you get a breeding population of ladybugs in your area. Aphid populations don't tend to explode anymore, <laughs> and I, my work, I haven't really, I haven't dialed in the ladybugs at my home garden yet. But when I was working 
in the after school program I was working at before the pandemic, we had just swarms of ladybugs. There were the little crocodile, you know, larval stage of the ladybug could be found everywhere in my garden. They were all over the place taking out aphids and other insects closely related. So once you build up a good population of ladybugs in your area, you don't tend to see aphids for a while. And they tend to come back year after year. You'll see the same ladybugs return to your garden again and again and again. Not the same ones, but the same lineages, I guess. So there's a, a light at the tunnel with aphids, which is that ladybugs take them out like that. All you have to do is provide decent habitat for ladybugs, a place they can be, and they'll do the work pretty much all day long. Um, but yeah, so that's aphids. Their life cycle makes them pretty vulnerable to uh, intervention, but you have to actually catch them at a phase before they've caused any real harm to the, to the crop, so to speak. And then another huge group of pests that are very important, and this one we'll spend a little time on because they're kind of weird, are scale insects. What scale is, is they are hemiptera. They're in the same family with all these others, but they are at the extreme other end of mobility. They, at least the female form, doesn't move in adulthood at all. So what happens is that a female scale insect will mate or will reproduce asexually and produce mobile live offspring. These are called the crawly phase or crawler phase. And these insects migrate around on the plant to find a spot where they can get in and start feeding. Once they start feeding, they go through a couple of instars, two to three, depending upon the species. And over the course of that, they're developing the large scale-like plate um, that's going to cover them the rest of the time they're feeding. <laughs> and so the female form in the adult form is soft-bodied other than the scale. Under that scale is a large, almost amorphous blob-like shape. Um, they don't have functional legs at that stage. They basically just feed and reproduce. So they they attach themselves. They're shielded by the scale to protect them from predators. They have a soft body under there with almost no mobility, if any at all. And they just feed for the rest of their life. And then produce more crawlies that go about their day. The difference is the males can be highly mobile in the species that still have them. Because some species reproduce asexually exclusively at this point. They lost their males at some point and no longer produce them. But in the species that have males, they go through two to three instars as well, but they pupate at the end of their third one and come out as a male with wings. And they actually look um, like little beetles, kind of. They, they don't look a lot like other hemiptera. They look almost like a beetle. And they will fly to another tree, usually, or another plant, looking for other females to reproduce with. And this gives them jet variability and movement. Um, so they're very different than the females, but they don't live very long. And their whole life cycle is built around basically getting big enough to pupate, pupating, becoming a male, flying off, mating, and dying. Um, and that's their entire life cycle. And I've always found scale insects actually to be kind of the most interesting just because their life cycle is so bizarre. You don't tend to see a lot of sessile animals like that that don't move around at all, right? When we think of sessile organisms, we think of plants or 
fungi or other things. And, you know, in, until you actually go into the water and you start looking at things like corals and polyps and things like that, you don't really see a lot of sessile animals. And so it, it's it's always fascinated me that scale insects are these weird little little blobs that hide under a shell their whole lives. But that's that's hemiptera. So the important things are, like I said, we, their life cycle is largely based on large periods of being somewhat sedentary. So they're pretty easy to actually target. The problem is, that in the case of things like uh, squash bugs and long-legged bugs, there aren't a lot of things that take them out in their adult stage. So it's not as easy to just, like with aphids, rely on some you know good insect showing up to take care of things. Another thing to keep in mind, too, is that if you want ladybugs in your garden, you have to tolerate aphids for large stretches of time. Because if you don't have a population of aphids, there's nothing for the ladybugs to eat. Once they show up, they'll manage the aphid population, and they shouldn't be that big a problem. They won't be causing a lot of deformed growth or um, other feeding-related issues to your plants, because there won't be the numbers to really do that. One thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these hemiptera and other related plants or other related insects can be huge vectors for diseases. Um, some mosaic viruses are spread by hemiptera, um, some other diseases. I think the insect that actually spreads uh, Huang Long Bing, the citrus greening, uh, that's a psyllid, and I think they are actually closer related to thrips, I want to say. And thrips are a different order, but it is the order closest related to the true bugs. So I don't think that the citrus greening we're dealing with here in California and that just completely devastated the Florida citrus industry, I don't think that is spread by an actual hemiptera, but it is closely related, and it's because of the same reason. Um, remember when I said that mouth part pierces the plant and it starts pumping in enzymes. Uh, this is the way that a lot of insects with sucking mouth parts like the hemiptera, but also mosquitoes and other pests. This is how they cause disease in their, in their hosts because ultimately they aren't that interested in killing or harming their hosts at all. They just want to feed and move on. Uh, the harm they do their host is incidental. It's not part of their feeding. It's not beneficial to them particularly. Uh, it's just part of sort of the fallout of what they're doing. So when an aphid spreads a disease from plant to plant, it's the disease just hijacking the aphid. It's not the aphid trying to destroy plants. They have no interest in that. They're just feeding. Uh, but because they pump their saliva and enzymes out like many other sucking type insects do they create a huge channel for for potential uh, diseases to get into a host right they they become a perfect vector and so a lot of things have evolved to do this i mean in mosquitoes we all know about malaria right it's a it's a disease that can be carried by mosquitoes and it happens the same way when they feed they pick it up and then when they feed again on somebody else they're releasing it back out a lot of these diseases that use mosquitoes have evolved specifically to be carried by mosquitoes so it's it's a very common tactic we see in nature um, is for 
some disease to use one of these sucking type insects as a host. And it's what can cause disease issues in your plants. If you have a plant that you see a sign of what may be a virus or a bacterial infection and you see uh, sucking type insects on it, you need to wipe those out as quick as you can. Um, and in some cases, if it's really bad, you may want to just remove the plant and dispose of it away from your normal compost and everything else. Uh, you may even just want to throw it in the trash depending upon how your trash is handled in your area. But it's it's a good idea to get them out immediately before they spread it to your other plants because they are a vector for a lot of diseases. And that's that's about all I have to say of Hemiptera. I'm going to do more uh, bug profile type things, both beneficial and pests, because I think entomology is really cool and I like talking about it. I will put some resources for it as well in the show notes. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it uh, going forward. TJ's garden has been an unfocused mess in the past, and I'm always coming up with like the soul. This is what it'll be about, and then I do an episode to say that, and then I, I end up changing it again like two episodes later. TJ's garden is my garden. I am inviting you into it so I can tell you the things I know about gardening or find interesting or just learned or just want to share. <laughs> and I hope people are interested in hearing that. Um, I have been throwing around the tagline horticulture, humanism, and anarchy, and I feel like that's a pretty good fit for my stance on things. I'm a horticulturalist. I love horticulture. I always have enjoyed working with and growing plants, and I'm a humanist, and I'm an anarchist. So uh, that's what my show's about. And a consequence of that and of how I currently live means a lot of it's going to be urban horticulture. Um, I don't live in a dense city. I live in a suburb, but it's an older suburb, so it's pretty dense. And I've lived in cities before, and I will likely live in cities again. Uh, I enjoy community gardening. Um, I'm, I've got some ideas for some episodes on rooftop gardening and green walls. I love urban trees and urban forestry. I think that's all very fascinating. If I were in far better shape and less afraid of heights, I would probably be going for um, the uh, arborist certification because that's very useful to have when you're working in horticulture. Even if you don't become an arborist, it's still something pretty useful to have. But I'm a chicken when it comes to heights, so I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But anyway, that's the stuff that interests me and kind of where I am in my life. So that's what I'll be talking about. And hopefully people enjoy the ride. Um, I've been working a little bit on my website for this. I, I reinstalled WordPress. I was playing around with something else with a static site generator. And I just want to write my stuff and put it up there. I don't want to have to fiddle too much. So I'm putting that on the back burner and just using something I know works. Um, I've gradually migrated off a lot of social media, so I'm, I'm mostly using uh, Mastodon, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can follow me over there. I still have an Instagram account, which I occasionally post gardening stuff to, and I think that's primarily the best way to catch me. I'm no longer on Twitter. Uh, I kind of just got tired of that and got rid of it. <laughs> and I may be doing the same to Facebook, 
but I don't have any TJ's gardening stuff on Facebook anymore. It's just my personal stuff, so it's not really a great way to follow me. Uh, the best places to follow me are the blog, the podcast, Mastodon, or Instagram, if you're interested. But yeah, that's the best way to get me. So anyway, this has been a rambly and somewhat short TJ's Garden, uh, only about 28 minutes, <laughs> but it is a topic I thought was worth covering, and I kind of just wanted to get back in the swing of things. Um, I will be doing some fun stuff with the show and changing some stuff around, and it's going to be different, but it's going to be a lot of the same too, so hopefully that's interesting to people. Anyway, thank you for listening, and thank you for tolerating my rambling, and have a great day. Go out in your garden and enjoy your day.